Welcome to the Alliance Party After Dark, a podcast for the politically aware brought to you by the Alliance Party. Content for this episode was recorded on Wednesday, August 11, 2021. And a good evening to you. I'm Dan Schaefer, your host for this evening's podcast. This evening, we're talking with Patricia Oliveras, a veteran of the U.S. Marines who now works as a progressive political operative and does a lot of work on behalf of veterans, as well as the residents of Harris County, Texas. More specifically, during this podcast, we're going to focus on women in the military. A military life can be difficult, but women often face the additional hardships. In general, there's a sense that the military is not adequately equipped, trained, and prepared to handle the needs of women. For example, Patricia, who had risen to the rank of Chief Platoon Sergeant, served in Afghanistan and suffered through several medical emergencies that were not adequately treated at the time. She felt she could not draw too much attention to these conditions, which became progressively worse over time because, well, she was afraid of being removed from her post. Yet the post was not prepared to give her adequate medical attention. When she finally received adequate medical attention stateside, she learned that she suffered from post-traumatic stress disorder, traumatic brain injury from an IED months earlier, and a fibroid tumor which required a partial hysterectomy. The pressure to perform and to try to power through difficult conditions is overwhelming and nearly killed her. Now keep in mind that women have been serving in the military since the Revolutionary War, but it wasn't until 1988, over 200 years later, that the VA began offering medical and mental health services to female veterans. In a recent interview in Voyage Houston magazine, Patricia said, quote, We women are the invisible veterans that many times are forgotten. Patricia, welcome to the Alliance Party After Dark. Thank you very much for your military service, and thanks for joining us this evening. Hi, Dan. Thank you so much for having me. So I went through a brief description of your experiences in the military, and and I know you're a proud soldier with the U.S. Marine Corps, and you come from a family with a long line of soldiers going back to World War I. So can you fill in some of the gaps for a listening audience? In other words, can you give us some personal perspective on how it's motivated you to become a strong advocate for veterans affairs, particularly for women? Well, as you said, uh, my family's service to this country traces back all the way to World War I. Uh, My grandfather was a Korean War veteran. He served in Korea during 1950, and he had his own personal uh, struggles um, with the military and the VA healthcare system. Um, He was injured in Korea. And when he came back stateside, he had to have his leg amputated. And so growing up in a household with a veteran, uh, with combat experience, you know, you really gain a appreciation and understanding for what they go through. So as a as a little kid, I had my grandfather as a role model mm-hmm. uh, to look up to, and I wanted to be the embodiment of what he was to me, which was selfless, uh, courageous, and. Um, to be a strong supporter of your community. So because of that, in 2001, I joined the United States uh, Marines to serve my country and continue in that family tradition. Um, I served in Iraq and Afghanistan, served in Iraq in 2008, in Afghanistan from 2010 to 2011. And in 2013, I was medically retired. And I came back home to Houston, Texas, where I decided to retire. 
Um, going through the process, trying to get adequate health care, trying to be an advocate for myself was really, really difficult. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the first thing is you have to know the system. You have to understand what the system can do for you and what it can't do for you. And mm-hmm. what I noticed is if you were a male veteran, the system was adequately equipped to take care of your needs. But as a female veteran, I found myself not e- not being able to get the care that I needed or having to be sent to outside providers to get the care that I needed. So for example, if I needed a, um, a uh, mammogram done, mm-hmm. you know, I couldn't go to the VA to get that done. I had to go to a civilian provider who could then, um, uh, who could then provide the services. It could be quite difficult having to manage within two healthcare systems. Yeah, I was going to say you have to coordinate between, get involved in coordinating the information back and forth between the VA and a private provider. Absolutely. And one of the great things about the VA, one of the great things that the VA does is they serve, uh, for for most veterans, they serve as their whole healthcare provider, meaning that that one system takes care of all your medical needs. So they have all your information centralized in one system. So for example, your primary care provider can coordinate with your mental health provider, or they can coordinate with your gastroenterologist or your optometrist and things like that. But when you're sent to these outside providers, some of the information can get lost. Mm -hmm. And so that in itself can be quite difficult. So that is really why I became a strong advocate for women veterans is because I felt that there was a void that needed to be filled. And I felt that my voice can could provide that platform for other women. So you're saying that like uh, even these days, uh, VA, even though they're they're now um, um, you know, providing services for for women veterans, that they don't even have things or, or they don't have things like mammogram uh, ability to do mammograms within the VA. Is that is that hold true for the whole VA or just some of the um, specific uh, uh, places? So, so no. So no, so now they've gotten, actually, they've gotten a lot better about being able to provide services. They actually have a women's health center, uh, which is a clinic that's dedicated to women veterans within the VA healthcare system. So for example, the Veterans Affairs Hospital here in Houston, Texas has a women's health center, and I can go there for all the services that I need, including mammography, but that didn't used to be the case. Okay. So the, mm-hmm, so the VA has definitely gotten better about being able to provide those resources, and Congress has gotten better about funding the, the VA system to be able to be to be able to adequately provide those services, because that's also a major uh, it's an important factor in making sure that the VA can run well, is mm-hmm. making sure that they have adequate funding. Okay, so um, so as I mentioned at the top of the podcast, uh, that uh, women have served in the U.S. military since the Revolutionary War, but um, just haven't received a lot of recognition for their service. Uh, In fact, a recent article in Teen Vogue magazine put it this way, quote, active duty and veteran service women face a lack of access to general and reproductive health care services, which can be a challenge that threatens their careers and their lives. 
So, I mean, I can't help thinking that there's a bias against women. It puts them at a severe disadvantage. I mean, even before basic training starts, um, this bias must manifest itself in every in the everyday life of women trying to serve their country. Can you comment more on this issue? There's always, yeah, that inherent bias always exists. It manifests itself in everything. You know, um, you're commonly referred to as the weaker sex, you know, or you know, told that, you know, you're not strong enough uh, compared to your male counterparts, or, you know, that maybe you're not good enough a Marine because, well, you know, you have two kids at home, you know, so it's like you constantly have to deal with that and figure out how to overcome it, you know, and you really have to know yourself and be a strong person and actually advocate for yourself to make sure that the inherent bias isn't used against you against you in a way that will negatively impact your career. You know, like for example, uh, when I was in the Marines, I had two young children, uh, mm -hmm. three and five years of age. And I needed to make sure that my that I had a childcare place and plan and that they would never be a disruption to me being able to show up to work on time, to be able to train with my Marines, to even to me being able to deploy. Because if my children um, had ever had my children ever become a problem, then that would have come back on me. Then they would have said, it's like, well, you know what? You're not a good enough uh, Marine because if you were, you wouldn't have these childcare issues. Wow. You know? And so it's like, in order to be a good mom and in order to be a good Marine, I had to do, I really had to balance that out in order to make sure like that I was taking care of my kids, but also, you know, that I was being that good Marine. But, you know, it, it, a lot of the guys that are saying this to you, I mean, they have children themselves, right? I mean, are they just taking it for granted that someone else is taking care of that problem for them? Because, you know, it's, well, it's not a, I didn't mean to phrase it as a problem. It's, it's, mm -hmm. but it, it is a, it is something to consider. And so they're just basically saying that, well, it's the woman's job to take care of the kids because, you know, they're doing the tough stuff, the manly stuff and yeah, absolutely. It's just something that military, male military members take for granted, especially if they have a, a dependent at home that is providing the child care. Mm -hmm. um, you know, they they disregard the fact that there are people that have different living situations. That's pretty tough because, I mean, even even in civilian life, you know, it's been said that women have to work twice as hard to get half the recognition. And um, I can imagine the pressure on you, especially when you're in Iraq and Afghanistan, where, you know, you you have all these external pressures upon you, including, you know, the pressure of combat itself is, is extremely stressful. And and yet you're having these, uh, you know, you feel that you cannot take care of your personal issues because of that need to perform, that, that need to work twice as hard to get half the recognition. I mean, it's yeah. it's bad enough in civilian in, in civilian life, but it's it could be deadly, <laughs> especially in a combat arena. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it reminds me of you know something that you said right now, Dan. Uh, reminded me of a um, of uh, a recent story 
uh, that happened and one that I think a lot of people are familiar with, you know, the story of uh, Private Vanessa Gein, you know, uh, a soldier out of Fort Hood, Texas, you know, we were talking about the pressures of having to perform um, Vanessa and, you know, I don't know how many of your listeners know, but Vanessa Gein was a 20 year old soldier. She was based in Fort Hood, Texas. She was originally from Houston, Texas, and she was being sexually harassed by members in her unit. Mm -hmm. And she was afraid to tell anybody. She was afraid to tell her family. She was afraid to tell any of her superiors for, because she was afraid of like how she would be perceived, you know, and it all goes back to having to do your job, having to um, meet all these expectations that maybe uh, male military members uh, don't have to meet, you know? And Mm -hmm. so she felt that she basically had to be quiet, deal with it and push forward, you know, in order to get her job done. And unfortunately that that resulted in some, um, and some pretty deadly consequences. Hmm. Well, what happened? So unfortunately, Vanessa, uh, uh, unfortunately, Vanessa, uh, it was discovered she had been missing for two months. And it was discovered that she had been killed by a fellow uh, soldier in her unit. Hmm. He had uh, killed her inside one of their office buildings and then transported her body out of the base and buried it um, in some, you know, somewhere out in the middle of nowhere. And, uh, you know, just very sad that it's unfortunate that she felt that in order for her to carry on the mission, uh, she could not tell anyone what was happening. And so that definitely resulted in some deadly consequences, you know, and unfortunately it's a fight that her family is still battling and, but, you know, they're, they're carrying on, carrying on that fight pretty well. And, um, Mm -hmm. you know, trying to get their, uh, trying to get Vanessa some justice. Well, in, you, you've suffered from PTSD, and, and I've been reading some of the statistics on PTSD. It, it's it's a grim story for anyone, but it is especially hard on women. Uh, they're not only exposed, as we mentioned before, to the stresses, you know, related to military life, and in your case, you know, in, in a combat situation, um, but by some accounts, nearly a third of female veterans report being the victim of sexual assault during military service. Additionally, uh, according to some studies, up to 90% report experiences of sexual harassment. And the result is that these experiences become a a major driver for PTSD. And I was reading uh, an article by Rachel Nadelson, I think her name is. She's an attorney specializing in the rights of military women. Um, Mm -hmm. She says military sexual assault is a stronger predictor of PTSD among women veterans than combat history. So... Is the uh, and another thing too? I was going to mention is it is it um, something that alarms me about uh, military uh, sexual assault in the military is, is that they actually invented an acronym for it called MST, military sexual trauma. Yes. Um, so, I mean, is the VA aware of this MST related sort of PTSD and and are they tasked with addressing it? Yeah. So. 
MST, military sexual trauma, is a is a problem within the military community, you know, and, and I go back to that story about Vanessa. Vanessa was being sexually harassed um, and she didn't know how to cope with it or how to even ask for help. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember talking to Vanessa's uh, sister, Myra, and Myra you know, told me how jubilant Vanessa was to go into the military. She was excited to start her career and to just, you know, see the world and all that. And probably about a year into Vanessa's military service, they said that she changed. You know, she had been talking about reenlisting and wanting to go to Germany. And all of a sudden, all of that changed. She started talking about how she couldn't wait to get out of the military. She became more withdrawn, more depressed. You know, people kept asking her, like, you know, is there anything we can do? Like, what's going on? And she would just say, like, no, no, nobody can help me. You know, but that was something that Vanessa uh, was dealing with, you know, a firsthand experience. I um, have never dealt on a personal level, I've never dealt with military sexual trauma. I did have a few incidents of where I felt that I was being harassed um, or, you know, that there was inappropriate interactions with mm-hmm. me. And, you know, I was able to, to, to handle those things. Um, um, but I have dealt with post-traumatic stress disorder and it has been difficult to get care for that. Um, I haven't relied on military providers to give me the healthcare that I need. And because of that, I think it's why I've thrived and been able to, um, to manage my PTSD. I actually get my healthcare treatment from civilian providers. I don't get it from the, uh, from the VA healthcare system. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that has really made a big difference in my life. Yeah, it's, um, I, I think that one of the articles I was reading says that even if a woman doesn't suffer specific trauma, uh, sexual-based trauma in the military, there's always that threat of, you know, sexual assault that, that's ever present. And I mean, even if it's unintentional, there's that threat is sometimes used to reinforce an environment of male dominance. That's, that's, uh, that's always on the back of your mind then, isn't it? Especially after you've been exposed maybe to some harassment or something. Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, for me, um, you know, I, I honestly, I can't tell you what it is. I, you know, I don't, I don't know if it's just because there are no pre- predictors, I guess, of if you're going to be a victim of sexual harassment, sexual assault. Um, well, I, I think that one of the, you know, I've, I've never been in the military. I've worked uh, in industry my whole life. I'm, I'm, been doing it for like 40 years now and we we do go through these uh training periods of uh, sexual harassment training which is especially prevalent over the last 20 years and, and becoming more and more uh front and center in in consciousness of private industry and i, I maybe i again i i can't you know switch roles and find out what it's like uh, to be sexually harassed, but uh, I think that in in private industry, anyways, there's a lot more consciousness about it, and there's a lot more. I've personally seen 
action being taken against people for doing sexual harassment. And it doesn't seem like it's, it would seem like in the military, it's a little bit more difficult because you, do you really get that much support from your, from your CEO or, or do you get, if, if there's just a single chain of command going up the ladder, if you don't get that support from your immediate supervisor, uh, in the military, uh, or your commanding officer, um, you're kind of lost, right? You, you, what, what other recourse do you have? Yeah, absolutely. If you don't have your chain of command on your side or even just uh, to have a, uh, or even, you know, an unbiased chain of command, there really isn't much that you can do. And again, because of Vanessa's case, there's been a push within the Department of Defense to remove those cases from from the military chain of command and having them assigned to independent review panels. So before it used to be your commanding officer, if a case was brought up against another service member and you were the one bringing up the charges or you know, you were you were the victim or you know, you were alleging that these incidents had happened, then basically it was up to your chain of command or your commanding officer to decide. Uh, who was right and who was wrong, you know, so he's the judge, he's the and jury. Yeah, exactly. Um, what other recourse do you have? Like in private industry, you've got the HR department. And this is, I've personally witnessed this on, on several occasions where uh, as soon as uh, the HR department is made aware of an incident, uh, boy, oh boy, I mean, things change immediately, you know, and, and you have an advocate, you have someone in your corner right away um, I don't see that happening if you have a single chain of command in a military situation. Yeah. And so Vanessa's case really brought a lot of those things to light. And so one of the things, one of the bills that was introduced and one of the changes that the military is making is that those sexual assault cases will now be referred to an independent review panel. They will no longer reside with the chain of command or that commanding mm. officer. Mm -hmm. Well, that's a good change then. Really is mm -hmm. a good change. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So um, you're advocating for uh, the people in, in the VA, particularly women. Um, and could you tell us a, a little bit about what you're doing in your advocacy process? So basically, I'm just trying to get the word out. I am trying to be that voice for women veterans for women service members who don't have their own voice or cannot advocate for themselves. Uh, I think that there's a lack in quality of care, lack of programs, just general lack of knowledge. And so what I do is I try to use my voice and my platform to bring awareness to those issues. Well, there's, I'm looking at a picture of you right now on, uh, on the screen in front of me. This is unfortunately all audio, but otherwise I'd show the picture. <laughs> but there's a picture of you speaking with U.S. Representative Al Green on Capitol Hill. So uh, tell us a little bit about that experience. How are you getting uh, attention? I mean, it, it, talking to somebody, to a U.S. Representative on Capitol Hill, that's that's pretty big stuff. How did, how did, yeah, uh, yeah, it's pretty exciting. So I had the opportunity to storm the Hill as part of Iraq and Afghanistan Veterans of America. They're an organization. They're the largest organization in the United States. Mm -hmm. um, 
of Iraq and Afghanistan uh, veterans. And yearly, what they will do is they'll bring up veterans to the nation's capital and uh, they'll meet with members of Congress and just debrief, me, debrief them on the various issues facing our veteran community. And so in 2019, I got a, the chance to be a part of IAVA Storm the Hill. And I got to talk with Representative Al Green, Representative Sylvia Garcia, um, and many, many other members of Congress, but to let them know these are the issues facing veterans. Um, we call them the top six, the big six priorities, um, and that includes mental health, the burn pit registry, educational benefits, you know, we let them know the most pressing issues concerning veterans and how they can help. And, you know, and what we encourage them to do is to vote for those bills or authorization acts that will uh, greatly benefit um, the lives of veterans. That's good. Yeah. So what can our, um, I mean, you're obviously taking a lot of action right now and, and getting a lot of attention. Um Personally, I would just be thrilled to go up to Capitol Hill and, and spend some time with some of these people. Um, so what can our concerned listeners do to get more information and, and help advocate uh, for women in the military? Yeah, for sure. I think, you know, the most important thing is obviously that they can call their members of Congress. They can call their local officials, state officials, local officials, you know, they can always let them know that they're interested in these specific uh, subjects as it pertains to members of the military and, you know, that they, that they want these issues addressed. But then the other side of that coin is, the other thing is that we have to get the right people in office. So along with calling their elected officials, they also need to make sure that they're supporting candidates who will support these veterans issues. So, you know, so that whether that's donating time, money, um, those are, that's gonna be really important to getting these veterans issues addressed. Who are the people that you're finding are the best advocates for your cause on the Hill as in, in terms of the politicians and, and other influencers out there? Yeah, for sure. So Rep uh, Senator Bernie Sanders, um, Senator Bernie Sanders is a great advocate for members of the military. He's been doing a lot of work in the space for many, many years, and he continues to do great, um, great work. His office is currently working on a bill that will improve veterans' access to dental health care. So okay. that's a bill that he's currently working on. Uh, another uh, elected official closer to home is Representative Sylvia Garcia. She's been a great advocate for members of the military, specifically women, uh, women in the military. She spearheaded the effort to get justice for Vanessa Gein, and she authored the bills that will improve the lives of women service women service members. Okay. Uh, so, so yeah, so she's been a great advocate and she continues to work in that space. And so she's just doing great things. Oh, that's good. Mm -hmm. Well, we can always have people calling their Congress people. I mean, that's, that's how it's supposed to work. Right. And, um, the thing that, that always mystifies me about this country is that, um, you know, we, we're very anxious 
and willing to put our military out there and put them at risk. And I'm just being very frank about that. A lot of times we just, mm-hmm. you know, are, are very anxious to do that. But when it comes time to uh, caring for the people that are out there on the front, uh, it it's it's like you have to you have to find your advocates. You know, like the Senator Sanders or or um, or Garcia. You, you mm-hmm. it's it shouldn't be that way, right? It should be, it should yeah. be, uh, if you, if you want to, if you want to, uh, have a strong military, you have to pay for everything. You know, you have to, have to think about everything in the front end, you know, the military hardware, the people, the training and so on. But then, you know, afterwards you got to take care of the people. And it yeah. just seems like that is the end of the equation that you're having your struggles and it shouldn't be that way. My goodness. So we yeah, did true. I- I was just going to say real quick, you know, one of the things, this is just one of my pet peeves, you know, and, and people, people that I talk to or whenever I tell people, they, you know, they always think it's interesting, but I don't like it when people tell me, thank you for your service. Mm -hmm. I, I don't, I don't like it, you know, because I see it the same as, um, as the phrase thoughts and prayers. Yeah, You know, yeah. like something will happen and they'll say thoughts and prayers. And it's like, that doesn't do anything, you know? And yeah. I noticed that sometimes the people that are most willing to send um, service members into combat, into the danger zone, are also the ones that won't do anything for members of the military, you know, but they, but they, but they love to say, thank you for your service. You know, there's a few elected officials that I can think of, you know, that have told me, thank you for your service. But if you look at their voting history, they always vote against veterans. You know, and it's funny because I know I said that at the top of the podcast, but it it felt more traditional. Um, You know, I do have heartfelt thanks for for soldiers that that do this. I do think it's a good service for the country. Um, Mm -hmm. But I think what you're saying there, it can sound very disingenuous sometimes because, um, you know, you have to follow through with that, you know, and and people don't do that they think okay well thank you and then they just dismiss it out of their mind it's funny to mention that because before we even started the podcast i was i was going to ask you about about that if that was something that was sensitive because i never talked to a veteran about this before and um that is it's it's very enlightening for me to hear that yeah, no. And, you know, if it's, you know, for example, it's just you and I, of course, you know, I never take it the wrong way, but typically if it's, um, you know, if it's an elected official or if it's someone that's in a position of power to be able to help veterans mm-hmm. and I know what their voting history is, it it's very disingenuous. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow. It can really make you cynical. Huh. <laughs> yeah. I, I, yeah, that's, it's why I, I'm on your side on this issue here. I've said this <laughs> for a long time. I was I, I was actually very much against the, uh, the the recent wars because I felt we were going to do that. That this was going to happen. That you know this there is no such thing as um, as it's not a game. You know it's not yeah. it's not a big football game where we're going to win. You know you don't focus on winning. You winning means that people are going to suffer. Our people yeah. as well as as well as the people that we're opposed to. And in the end, really, nobody wins in those situations. Exactly. You know what, Dan, it's really interesting that you say that because, you know, as a young member of the military, I was 21 years old 
uh, when I joined. As a matter of fact, the day that I got to my unit, I had just completed all of my training and was ready to be a you know regular Marine out in the, mm-hmm. in the real world. And I arrived to my first unit. Uh, I had a sergeant that was taking me around to the different buildings, having me check in, turn in records here and there. And I remember we, he took me to this one medical building so I could turn in my medical records. And as I was standing in line, getting ready to turn in my medical records, uh, there was a TV on and somebody said, um, somebody yelled like, hey, that plane just hit the building. And all of a sudden the room got really, really quiet and everybody starts, you know, looking, you know, everyone starts crowding around the TV and everyone's watching. And we'd been sitting there for a few minutes and all of a sudden you see the second plane hit the towers. And uh, that was September 11th, 2001. And I remember somebody saying, we're going to war. And so that was definitely, that's a memory that's burned deeply uh, into my memory. And I could always recall it. I could always remember, you know, how many people were standing around me what I was doing, what I was wearing, uh, you know, uh, I, at the time, I didn't know what it meant for me. I just knew that I was in this new place and I didn't know what that meant. And if I was going to be sent overseas and years later, you know, in 2008, I got sent to Iraq. And then in 2010, I went to Afghanistan and at the time, I didn't have much of an understanding of why we were, why were we in those countries? I didn't understand what that meant for the people and I didn't understand what it meant for me. But now being 42 years old and being able to look back on those experiences, you know, I just think to myself and, and, and I say like, why were we in those countries? There was no reason for us to be in those countries because there was so much suffering on both sides. Yeah. And when you look at the reasons for the United States entering into those countries and invading it, uh, the reasons just aren't, um, there are no reason, there is no good reason for us having gone into those countries. And now, as we've seen, you know, since the U.S. has withdrawn its troops from Afghanistan and the country has fallen back under Taliban control, the country is worse off than it was before, you know, 2001. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, That that was, um, yeah, I mean, it was all about winning hearts and minds, right? But that's kind of hard to do when you're kicking in doors and, and taking, you know, young adults out. And it's in the middle of the night, you know, and, and it's, it's, um, boy, boy, we could talk for hours about that. It, it, it just, uh, yeah, look at, look what happened after all these, all this time and all this, tre- all the, all the blood and treasure. And that's not to mention the blood and treasure on, on the opposing side as well in Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, yeah, it will, you know, it's interesting, you know, you said hearts and minds, and you know, it was all about winning hearts and minds. I was part of a female engagement team. Mm-hmm. And it was a group of 47 women, and we were all trained in infantry tactics. But our main role was to interact with the local population, you know, and mainly the female population. Mm-hmm. And so we had to learn a lot about Afghani culture, traditions, uh, 
you know, the family structure. So then that way we can adequately interact with them and, and really build these uh, connections with them. Mm-hmm. So while I was in Afghanistan, I really gained an appreciation for who they were, for their traditions, um, for just all these different things about them. And so I remember being there and thinking like, why are these people like, you know, why are they our enemy? Because what I learned about them was that they, they were people just like me. They cared about their their family. They cared about their safety. They worried about, you know, how their children were going to grow up, if their children were going to have a future, you know? So it's like, you know, I know one of the main missions of the U.S. military overseas was to win hearts and minds. But, you know, I I feel like they also won my heart and my mind. And I couldn't understand why we were in their country doing what we were doing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, like I say, I was never in the military, but I did a lot of traveling uh, around the world as a business person. Um, uh, you know, quite a few different places, quite a few different cultures. And I've learned the same thing. You know, it, it at the end of the day, everybody worries about the same thing. You know, are, are my kids going to be okay? Are they, are they, can I get them into a good school? Um, am I going to be able to make enough money to, you know, feed everybody and uh, even maybe have some happiness along the way? You know, it's just, it, it, it's, uh, you know, it expresses itself in different cultures for sure. But at, at the end of the day, you know, we all live on Maslow's Triangle, you know, that, that, we all want to get the basics for our survival and we all want to build a better life for ourselves and for our children. And, um, yeah, I, I agree. You know, I, it sounds like a really good learning experience for you over there. It, it's under, you know, less than ideal situation, obviously, but, um, you come back with a pretty good lesson in that area then. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, and you come back to the States, you know, and you really appreciate things differently, you know, you, um, you don't take things for granted as much, you know, but you really, um, you really learn to take a step back and really appreciate people, especially the people that are around you to really get to know them and understand them, you know? Um, And that's kind of just something that I feel that I brought back uh, with me from having served overseas is that now in the sphere that I work in and advocate in, is just about trying to meet people where they're at and really getting to know them on the on a much personal level. Yeah, that's very well stated. Well, um, we're going to wrap this up here shortly. Is there anything else we can uh, pass along to our listening audience uh, uh, and concerning um, additional help that they can provide for women in the military? I know we talked about contacting our service people. And, and are there any other organizations? I'm contacting our representatives, I should say. Uh, are there any other um, organizations that uh, you're aware of that uh, are doing the same thing? Uh, you know, I know that... Um... There are many uh, military-centric organizations uh, locally, statewide, and nationally uh, that do work on behalf of veterans. But what I would really encourage listeners uh, to do is to contact their elected officials and make sure that those elected officials know that rather than giving uh, 
funding to these nonprofits or to these veteran-centric organizations that they pour that money into the uh, systems that are already in place. So making sure that the uh, Veterans uh, Affairs Department uh, gets appropriate funding, you know, that the county veteran services offices get appropriate funding because we already have the systems in place and those systems do work. We just need to make sure that they're adequately funded. Very good. I like that. We've been talking with Patricia Oliveras, a veteran of the U.S. Marines who now works as a progressive political operative and, and also does a lot of work on behalf of veterans, particularly women veterans, as well as the residents of Harris County, Texas. Patricia, thank you very much for uh, stopping by and chatting with us this evening. Thank you so much, Dan. Thank you for tuning in to the Alliance Party After Dark podcast. Please consider subscribing to this podcast so that you don't miss any episodes. Each week, we'll bring you interesting topics from the Alliance Party. You may subscribe on iTunes, Google, or Spotify. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast and would like to get involved in the Alliance Party, see our website at www.theallianceparty.com. The Alliance Party is all one word. As we expand the party, we need your involvement. Democracy is not a spectator sport. Donations and volunteers are always welcome. If you'd like to contact us at the Alliance Party After Dark, drop us an email at podcast at theallianceparty.com. Also, see our Twitter page at Alliance On Air. All content for this podcast is copyright the Alliance Party. Views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of the Alliance Party. I'm Dan Schaefer, your host for this evening's edition of the Alliance Party After Dark. And on behalf of everyone at the Alliance Party, have a wonderful evening, a great week ahead, and we hope you drop in for our next show. Be safe, be aware, and please take care of yourself and those around you.